Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or Whatever Movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. You got to commit. <laughs> no, because then it's a caricature. That was my <laughs> Javier Bardem, Ricky. Today, we're talking a movie available in theaters and on Prime, in ultra high definition. A movie from last year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yay, Happy New Year. Yeah. Our New Year episode being the Ricardos. And it's uh, actually the 70th anniversary of the debut of I Love Lucy, I think. There is no show that defines my childhood more than I Love Lucy. Would you say the same? Yeah, and probably mom's childhood. She was only about five years old when her mom started watching it. And I thought about this because, yes, it was a huge runaway hit and many, many people watched. But then I thought that it was kind of this Mexican thing and this Latin American <laughs> thing and this Cuban thing. And in a way, it was because so many people of Mexican or, or South American origin ancestry identified with the character of Ricky that was kind of unheard of. I would broaden even more and say it's kind of an immigrant thing. I Love Lucy was one of the things that Celia and I bonded over pretty early on. Really? We had both seen every single episode and we had adopted some weird, you know, Lucy mannerisms just because when you see a character that much, you know, it's like she becomes a friend where you start mimicking and adopting some characteristics and whatnot. Anyway, so it was definitely a thing for Celia, you know, and I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that, you know, her parents are first generation Korean Americans. That's what it was for many people. And that was obviously the concern that Lucy is an all-American girl and being married to an immigrant just wouldn't fly, at least for the purposes of TV, which was twisted 70 years ago. <laughs> the hoops that they jumped through seemed entirely self-generated and totally unnecessary. But, you know, I wasn't there for that time and things were different. Yeah, well, you're speaking specifically about a mixed-race couple and Javier Bardem depicts Desi Arnaz reinforcing that. Ricky Ricardo is an American and that he loves America. I think he literally says that. But you're also talking about the weird verboten stuff like you can't be pregnant or say pregnant. You can't depict a married couple sleeping in the same bed, let alone in two beds next to one another. And yet having a cigarette sponsor and incessantly smoking on screen is totally fine. Right. Curious to see how it evolved and how influential and important and impactful and lasting that impact was, given that I Love Lucy really only ran five years in time, which by today's standards is a fairly short run of the show, especially for one so massive. I don't know that there are any other shows lasting as long as this one did. And part of that is because of the fact that Desi insisted on shooting on film, which uh, led to better quality. I Love Lucy, the selections that they have from it on Prime, it looks pretty crisp. Yeah. Like it's not 70 years old dated looking. Talking about the I Love Lucy show as opposed to the movie, and it's hard not to do. Look, we are older in the sense that we see the things that were familiar in our life start to be recreated and introduced to younger generations, which is weird. And it seems funny to say that I Love Lucy is the show that I'm like, what? They're remaking it? That's weird. 
And we've seen things much younger than I Love Lucy recreated, but nothing to which I was so closely tied. Like, there is no way that they're going to convince me that the illusion is complete, right? That Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem are Lucy and Desi. I mean, they've done it before <laughs> in TV movies, but there's no way to complete this illusion. You're not going to convince me in the same way that you could convince me maybe that Jamie Foxx is Ray Charles or Will Smith is Ali or any of those things, you know? Well, they're not recreating the show, let's be clear. They are simulating it for the purposes of a broader dramatic narrative. But to your point, I definitely was very resistant, very resistant. As was I. <laughs> Especially to Nicole Kidman. I watched Being in the Ricardos with mom and dad. Really? They were here for the holidays and I kind of pushed it because I was like, have you seen it? They were like, no. I was like, great, we're watching it tonight because I wanted to have the experience of watching it with mom and getting her impression. But before even seeing it, she went she went into her, ironically, Lucy-esque performance of being like, I don't like her. <laughs> and I was like, Nicole Kidman? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, she's so Lucy. It's so funny how much of mom is Lu how much of Lucy, how much of mom is Lucy. Anyway, I was super resistant. I couldn't see anything but the discrepancies between Nicole Kidman's features and Lucille Ball's features. And yet, as the movie went on, I kind of gave in. I kind of was like on board. It was crazy. It was either hugely distracting or mesmerizing. I Love Lucy is in my blood. For some of these episodes, I know the intonation so I could see it's different, you know? And then at points, for every single character, they would talk and I would get it. It would ring true. And that was the most unexpected thing. Right. Yeah. At first, I'm like, why is Nicole Kidman talking like that? Where she's like, Pablo, Jose. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> and I revisited that specific episode, Ethel and Fred fight. And it's pretty good. It's not perfect, but it, the essence is there. Lucy Arnaz, her daughter, said she captured the soul of her mom. And I think that's probably the best way to put it. And while it wasn't pitch perfect, they've done scene by scene comparisons of the movie and the show, the elements yeah. of the show that they recreated. And it's different, but also not that different. At one point, Kelly said, was that Nicole Kidman in the scene when she's doing it was just a brief glimpse of the Italy uh, one where she stomps the grapes. Oh, yeah. But facial expressions were dead on so well recreated in a way that just kind of captured it. Yeah, I, I saw a different side of Lucy. I didn't think I could see a different side of the Lucy that it, that appears in I Love Lucy. And yet I, I did. I didn't even realize. It was so normal normal to me. I didn't even realize that Lucy talked like that yeah. and how much of a show she was actually putting on. Right. How could Lucille Ball not be the Lucy character where every the delivery was higher? Her register was higher. Everything was theat. It was more theatrical, less actually realistic on TV. But yeah, behind the scenes, her voice was lower. She didn't enunciate everything. She clearly said several times that Lucille Ball was not funny, that Lucy Ricardo is funny, mm. but everything didn't mm -hmm. have to be hammy or wide-eyed. It was uh, She was a real person. They were both real people. And in that way, but all of them embody those real people that I didn't really know behind the show. Mm -hmm. All of these actors, they kind of stand now for who these actors 70 years ago were. 
Mm, interesting. I think we all knew about the fabled tension between Ethel and Lucy or even Ethel and Fred. But to see that come to life was really bizarre. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a happy movie. I wasn't sure if focusing this movie in the scope of a week of production was necessarily the right way to go. Most of these things are accurate, but I don't know that they necessarily happened all in the same week, although it might have it might have been concentrated a little bit. The big hurdle that this movie first has to clear is, of course, the portrayals of characters that I know like the back of my hand. And being able to surmount that obstacle is no small feat. And then once you get over that hurdle, whether it works for you or not, then you have to examine the movie critically, which is a tough thing to do because then it becomes a historical biopic kind of thing. It has to be structurally sound. And then Sorkin added another hurdle with this documentary device where I think the filmmakers were asking quite a lot of us to stay in the narrative and yet pop out for these eyewitness kind of reports, I guess, of what was happening during that week. So a lot to distract us from the driving narrative of this film. Curious, too, that those later day interviews with Bob Carroll and Madeline Pugh and stuff, those were also hugely dated. I think those must have been dated like in the 70s or 80s. Why? Those weren't modern modern day. That's not possible. Why? Because they were fully formed adults. As they were working on the show, Jess Oppenheimer and Bob Carroll, Madeline Pugh and stuff, and they were talking in the past tense, and they were, you know, probably in their 60s, I would guess. Uh, Ronnie Cox popped up from Beverly Hills Cop, and I was like, oh, Ronnie Cox. But he looked pretty old. Are you saying that that can't be current day because they're much older or they've passed? Right. They would have been maybe 20 years over by the time they were interviewed, but they weren't talking in modern day about a show from 70 years ago when they were adults. So even those interviews sitting around the pool, while it wasn't explicitly stated, had to have been set in the in the 80s, give or take. I was scoping their fashions because I was like, it doesn't track. Nobody is alive from that era. Okay, so it's impo- yeah, it's impossible then for them to be speaking from today because they're they've passed. Which were actors? You're aware of that, right? God, are you serious? Yeah, the one who played the executive producer of the show was Ronnie Cox, who was Lieutenant Bogomil in Beverly Hills Cop. Are you serious? Oh my, that really got lost on me. Well, what was the purpose of that then? I mean, to to me, those interviews were supposed to lend credibility to just how crazy it was that week. And didn't they? That Sorkin didn't take complete creative license in (laughs) manufacturing the sequence of the events of that week. And yet he did. Yeah. And didn't it work that way? Because you thought they were real. Wow. What? It's just like illusion on top of illusion on top of illusion. Obviously, you can't get away from Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem um, and J.K. Simmons, but everyone else, including the the actress who played Ethel, who I'm ashamed to say I can't remember her name just at the moment. Nina Arianda. Tony-winning actress. No slouch. And certainly gave me weird Ethel Mertz, Vivian Vance vibes. So many layers of removal. Right. It's this actress playing another actress most famous for playing a character that I most closely recognize. Right. Right. Illusion on top of illusion on top of illusion. But even still, when she gets in the show for those brief glimpses, thankfully, they didn't go too much into the black and white and they didn't recreate. They gave us touchstones, but they didn't continually try to convince us that they were Lucy and Ricky. But when they did, you know, Fred, Ethel, that kind of stuff, like I would get chills from every single one of these performers that lent to that authenticity just long enough for me to be convinced. And then they would cut away from all that stuff because it really was a behind the scenes kind of movie. Behind the scenes flashbacks and then also this interesting inner vision 
device. What did you think of the device of Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball envisioning what the scripted scenes looked like? in her mind. She was a major power player, one of the most, if not the most powerful woman in entertainment at the time, the first female owner of a studio, a real visionary in the sense that she had the guts and the smarts to be able to envision exactly how it should be, much to the consternation of others. When she was suggesting going over and over about the flowers, even I was like, will you give up on the stupid flowers? Will you give up trying to pull these poor people in? You know, Bill Frawley wasn't exactly a spring chicken, and she's like, show up at 3 a.m. so we can block this thing right in the rain i was like you're you're obsessing a little bit but also she was a little bit distracted and had kind of a yes. lot going on in her life but it does show how how keenly she was involved she wasn't just like you know okay lucy on time for set coming you know and and they were kind of pushing all the buttons right. for her like oh i'm just the talent i show up and you tell me what to do and so i was okay with it that said there was a lot going on in this movie that i didn't entirely feel was necessary now that we're talking about it i feel that that device which was pretty obvious to me that they were that was that they were trying to employ was maybe more necessary than focusing on their courtship kind of to begin with. You're saying the courtship wasn't important? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that. But this it was. movie is about this movie might be set within this one week of production and have these flashbacks and whatnot. But this movie really is about the relationship. I mean, that's what begins and ends this movie. This this movie it's more about the rise and fall of a relationship than it is a television empire. Well, sure. Not just TV. But there are three major components that we're dealing with here. There's the I Love Lucy show and whether or not it's going to be canceled because Lucy is a communist. And then there's the relationship, most of which takes place, you know, the setting is is set before the show and how they came to be at this place. And then the third thing is the pregnancy. And I don't know that all of those things are comparable in, in terms of dramatic scope and narrative thrust. And some, I feel, were less necessary than the others. But then again, this is a movie in which, like I said, once we clear the hurdle of the actors, we have to examine how effectively this movie works. And just because I was won over by a bunch of actors that I was terribly resistant to because nobody could have played these parts to a T, then I have to think, how good was Being the Ricardos as a movie by Aaron Sorkin? And it seemed kind of to be all over the place. There was a lot going on, but the pregnancy problem, I guess if you can call it that, was like, wait, you're what? It wasn't that big a deal trying to clear that hurdle with Philip Morris, but that problem was put on equal footing. It was just as severe as the communist problem, just as severe as are you cheating on me? Is our marriage falling apart? And I'm not sure that all those, uh, you know, matched up head to head. What do you think? Hmm. I hear what you're saying. I mean, pregnancy is a kind of big deal. And when you're an actor on television and you can't deny the changes to your body and it's completely taboo to even mention the word pregnancy on television. I guess what I'm saying is I think that having a child is a life disrupting experience. It's a joyful one, too, but it's undeniably disruptive. And I think that if this is truly a story about personal lives, about the rise and fall of a relationship, then the pregnancy is kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's a perspective, unfortunately, that I don't have, but you do. But how about this? How about the idea of establishing the Red Scare and McCarthyism and whether or not Lucy is a communist, and then sort of dropping that for a flashback which focuses on their courtship? Like, these are the story dynamics that I'm talking about. Pregnancy was probably a bad example. But we were getting all into the height of Isle of Lucy fame. Oh, no, is Lucy a communist? Let's flash back to their relationship. <laughs> I mean, I, 
I guess you're kind of saying, pick a problem. And also, is there a logic to the sequencing? I guess it is pretty crazy in telling that all those things would be bearing on them in the course of a single week. Exactly. Like, how am I supposed to deal with communism when I'm pregnant? In the course of a single... <laughs> in the course of a single week, all intended to add tension and pressure and conflict. The way I look at it is all of these things are either symptomatic of or putting pressure on the relationship that's falling apart. Uh, if it did happen in one week, and I don't have all the facts on this, maybe all three of these concerns collided at the same time, in which case, boy, what a week. But uh, they were just, <laughs> these problems were just kind of touchstones for me. I was so shocked when I listened to interviews, when I watched stuff with Aaron Sorkin, with all the principal actors. They all said I was so surprised to find out that Lucy was accused of being a communist. That's something I never knew. And I was like, obviously not as crazy a diehard fan of I Love Lucy as I am, because sure, I knew that. It was a big thing. I knew about lines that I was expecting that they didn't use in the movie. Uh, Desi Arnaz is famous. The only thing read about Lucy is her hair. And even that's fake. You know, and they never used that line. And so it it wasn't a surprise to me. Obviously, I knew about the courtship. I knew about never having been anywhere near each other in a bed on TV. The fact that they couldn't say pregnancy and what they didn't say that I know is that they instead said expecting or the hugely awkward infanticipating. Infanticipating? Yeah. Was that a portmanteau? Uh, yeah, kind of. That's not the one that I made up. That's what they were saying. You're trying to dance around this word. It's so dumb. But then again, it's 70 years ago and people were dumb. What are you going to do? Right. But uh, So the point is, all of these things I kind of knew were coming and I knew were brewing and throwing them all together was kind of a surprise for me. But otherwise, I was trying to get glimpses of behind the scenes stuff. I really wanted to see how the actors playing the actors, William Frawley and Vivian Vance, would get along. Did they outright hate each other as the legend goes behind the camera or did they have a cautious kind of working relationship because they they did get through it and they were physically intimate and like playing a married couple on screen and it's not like they were screaming or wouldn't talk to each other they had a working relationship they just weren't very fond of each other at all and i guess at times the same could be said for desi and lucy yeah, how much the on-screen relationship kind of differs from the behind-the-scenes or off-screen relationship. But I think that they really summed up the Fred and Ethel dynamic in the movie for me in a way that was, like, very accessible and bite-sized, where the Nina, the, man, it's so hard, to, the Vivian Vance. <laughs> it's like, what, what actor playing what layer of the role? Anyway, Vivian Vance in the movie says, you know, I, I get the joke that Ethel married her grandpa, but that she's also not good enough for him. Still not beautiful enough or good enough or young enough. And that's the joke. And I was like, oh, man, that is the joke. And imagine how hard that would be to live, to play, to act out day in and day out. And she's defiantly going on her crash diets or her fad diets. And everybody's saying, you look great, but we want the Ethel that we cast. Right. And like, yeah. And it's a tough thing. It's a tough line to walk. And I think about actors who have like, quote unquote, let themselves go. <laughs> like, you know, like when Matt Damon went through his fat phase and you're like, what's going on with Matt Damon? You're like, how about he's just a person who wants to live his life? Right. People have fat shamed Jason Momoa when he wasn't like cut and ripped and defined. I was like, are you you can't. This is fat shaming. That's that's shocking to me. Uh... 
Wow. That is the deafness of Aaron Sorkin, where you take a thing that I'm, I feel like I'm super familiar with and then give it some perspective and you're like, oh, that makes sense. And in terms of kind of boiling it down or, or delivering it, as you said, bite-sized, I agree. I think that the hallway conversation between Lucy and Madeline Pugh was also pretty telling. The yeah. Madeline Pugh defended her position, saying that she was always sticking up for Lucy, making her smarter because she is infantilized on the show to a degree. I mean, there are points during I Love Lucy, incredibly, where Ricky bends her over his knee and spanks her for being a bad girl. <laughs> he also looks through her ear to the other side of the apartment because she's got nothing inside of her head. And the the expectation that she play that role continually. While also being a badass businesswoman studio executive. Right. That it must be difficult to play because she was so long regarded as being that character as opposed to that person. And so that was the best part for me was trying to find out who that person was behind the character played by a person playing a character. There, <laughs> there was also some very telling was it confidence or was it bragging where she's like people want to see themselves and that's why we have you and people don't look like me like somehow that was delivered in a way that didn't feel like complete narcissism i firmly believe lucille ball is a comedy legend and a real genius i know that word gets bandied around a lot but she definitely stood out for her gender for her time and place I don't think you can get bigger and brighter than she was. That said, Lucille Ball wasn't always right. In fact, she was kind of a jerk to some people because she had to be. And all that ambitious, driven kind of thing that can be ascribed to Desi, when she does it, it's like, Lucy? Lucy's mean? Lucy's insulting? Suggesting that Vivian Vance isn't attractive for a reason and that she's above what the general housewife looks like? Because she also didn't listen. She doesn't listen all the time. And sometimes people are right and she's not. The key, I think, was focusing on her decisions and dedication and her determination to have things her way if the thing was going to go on. And for two such strong personalities, I thought that the Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz portrayals, those characters had a really good dynamic. They supported each other. She says, I'm not doing this show unless I'm doing it with my husband. He gives her the latitude that she needs to have her creative influence on the scripts, on the performances. He cedes to her in meetings, knowing that he doesn't have to be the dominant leader in order to kind of know his place. Like all of the concerns that William Frawley were, was sharing with Lucy, like saying, Desi needs to be recognized as a man and someone who's in charge. Like, I don't know if those concerns were really valid when executive producer Jeff Oppenheimer tries to placate Desi by saying, you know, you're actually the titular character. And he's like, don't patronize me. Right. Like, it didn't seem like he needed that. Like, he knew his place. He knew his contribution. He knew what he had to offer. He was willing to give Lucy the room that she needed to have to be in charge. Like, I felt like they had a pretty good dynamic for two people whose relationship was falling apart. True. I mean, supportive professionally as well as personally. Because Desi did these things doesn't mean that he was a bad showrunner or a bad executive or that he was a bad partner to Lucille Ball slash Lucy Ricardo on set. Yeah, it gave her a lot of latitude even when she refused to listen, even when, in my personal opinion, she wasn't always right in, in pushing things forward or focusing on the minutiae that didn't necessarily have 
have any bearing on the show itself, but also she was headstrong and informed by the perspective of other people, ultimately. It was very weird to see this idea that William Frawley would sit Lucy down for sage fatherly type advice. Like I was like, that's not their characters at all. No. And that's the stuff I appreciated. I appreciated how aware the Vivian Vance character was of her position and that it was she knew how fortunate she was and also the drawbacks of the role. And of course, Vivian Vance in real life and Lucille Ball continued their relationship after I Love Lucy with the caveat that her character did go by Viv in the Lucy show. And she insisted on wearing more glamorous kind of on par with Lucy wardrobe. She wasn't the dowdy uh, match to Fred. Uh She wasn't the Ethel Mertz of that time uh, moving forward. All that stuff is good behind the scenes. It was crazy to me how long it was before we saw Lucy footage that lights up the screen where the the sets and everything are well lit and there's a studio audience and laughing and hamming and the facial expressions and stuff. They were talking about you know, the episode to come during production week against this shadowy backdrop of the iconic set of the Ricardo's apartment. I was like, seriously, they're having their like weekly meetings on the set in the middle of the Ricardo's living room. (laughs) It was weird. That was just a set. It wasn't their home. And it was, I guess, in a way telling that these ordinarily bright sets that we've come to identify with the Ricardo's home was just the backdrop, the shadowy backdrop of their real life relationship and dealings Mm. and this kind of thing that Lucy was always in the background the character I don't know maybe that's maybe that's a little bit too heavy on the symbol no I think that's interesting if it wasn't a, a visual choice then it regardless worked really well to kind of set that tone to what degree it was intended I'm not sure but I think that the idea was there all the time the all the way down to the champagne bottle which was kind of a metaphor that was pretty obvious she's running and shaking the thing up and they could burst at any time and not exactly sure if it's good or bad kind of thing and i was like okay mm. we got you know we got aaron sorkin doing his thing and there's definitely layers here but at the same time one of my editors said before i watched the movie that it was kind of slow and that he turned it off about halfway through and i was like no you can't turn off the lucy and desi movie i've heard similar reviews right but it was a little bit slow nothing actually <laughs> happens in this movie, it's all anticipation and worry about what's going to happen. It's all speculation. What's going to happen if they find out Lucy is registered as a communist? What's going to happen if Lu- is Desi actually cheating on her? We don't see any cheating. What's going to happen? I'm pregnant. And how are they? we going to handle the show moving forward? Nothing actually happened. I guess they resolved <laughs> in a way. They resolved the, everything, right? right? The Cuban, don't mess with the Cuban. The Cuban won. They get to be pregnant. Lucy, uh, Ricky <laughs> saves the day in a very dramatic, very public way, exonerating Lucy in front of a studio audience with the then head of the FBI. Yeah, sorry, didn't actually happen. I mean, they didn't get J. Edgar Hoover on the phone. He did make a speech, like I said, with the red hair thing. Ah, like a red herring. That's terrible. <laughs> well, yeah, the problems are resolved. And the cast is a lovely moment out in the alleyway before everything is about to go down. And then the coda kind of firmly establishes this as a tragedy, at least from the perspective of the marriage, the relationship. I mean, I feel like they're hitting that beat of this is what happened. 
But at the same time, this flurry of activity and all this information was as contained and limited within this movie as I Love Lucy was encapsulating their lives, their romance, their marriage. I think it was a cute snapshot that doesn't, it wasn't terribly expansive. I mean, we just saw the trial of the Chicago 7, which had massive crowds and demonstrations and things like that. And you could have seen some of that. Maybe the concern when the news finally hit, people take to the streets and they're picketing, like, is Lucille Ball a communist? You know, our red is a red, our redhead is a red or something. But we never kind of went beyond the studio. It's like Moneyball. We never got beyond these sort of back hall meetings. Uh, we never right. saw her pregnant. We never saw the episode where little Ricky is born. We never saw him on the boat, Desi on the boat. Never saw the fallout worldwide or nationwide of the Red Scare and McCarthyism for perspective, which was a unique historical event that I wouldn't have put it past Aaron Sorkin to show in a much grander way getting outside of the Desilu studios. But we never saw that stuff very contained. I think that being Ricardo's felt very cinematic, even though it was contained. There was scale and there was scope because of the flashbacks. We actually get out on, on Mulholland Drive and you get some club scenes. But to be honest, I'm not clear. Are you? Did you like this movie? <laughs> I think this was an all right movie, which is my official rating, because I have to get past my I Love Lucy bias, which was kind of a blessing and a curse. It was going to be a real drawback if they couldn't convince me. And once they convinced me, I was like, yay. But I don't know if a person who never watched I Love Lucy would find this movie interesting in the slightest. Is it a well-made movie? <laughs> Kelly confessed she had only seen a couple of episodes of this show before she had met me. And she said the movie was all right. I think her all right is different from mine. And so he cleared the bar for me, certainly. At the same time, I cannot say, because it was, it's like Ready Player One. It's like, this part is really personal to me, and the rest is okay, but it's enough. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It did feel limited, sort of contained, but I still enjoyed watching it. I was, frankly, more relieved than I was elated after having seen this movie that they were able mm. to pull off some of these performances, some of which I think are actually miraculous. I don't know if they're going to get nominated or whatever, don't care, but I could not have come in with more with more expectation and dread for these acting <laughs> roles. And in that respect, I was satisfied. It's crazy. My prediction is that Nicole Kidman will get nominated. I thought she gave a stellar performance and it certainly wasn't an easy performance. Lots of layers to navigate. But I definitely got some of the same feedback that you did, like hated it, turned it off, unwatchable. So it does call into question if you can appreciate being the Ricardos, not being a fan of I Love Lucy. And I certainly am a fan of I Love Lucy. And I really relate to you saying that maybe the primary emotion was that of relief as opposed to elation. Um, I was relieved that they didn't completely muck it up. I felt like I did learn some <laughs> things. I feel a little hoodwinked a little bit, but nevertheless kind of enjoyed this enough to give Being the Ricardos a good. So there you have it. That's our review on Being the Ricardos. You get an all right from Wes and a good from Iris, two of the biggest I Love Lucy fans out there. Please let us know what you thought of being the Ricardos, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Happy New Year to our very faithful and wonderful audience. We really appreciate you and look forward to a fabulous 2022. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. 
Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.